Got a chance today to reconnect with uh, a great drummer and a guy who's still uh, finding peace through his apparatus and learning every day. Larry Zach, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Yeah, thank you, Jake. You know, I, I kind of just wanted to ask you, um, after Savage Grace disbanded, did you... Stay, did you go back to Detroit, or did you wind up calling California home at that point? Yeah, it was a big decision, but uh, my wife and I and our daughter, who was at that point just a little over two years old, uh, we decided to stay. And uh, mostly, yeah, all the other people stayed for a short time after that, but then, uh, you know, within a few years... Uh, they went back, except for the piano player, John, and uh, he's still out here as well. Really? Um, so, you had a, you know, you had a young family. Uh, yeah. Studio scene was, like, already, like, completely locked down. Uh, I'm curious about how you made inroads. Uh, it was still, an, you know, in terms of what was the club scene like? In the early 70s, I remember talking to Dash Crofts, and uh, he played with Seals and, you know, Seals and Crofts. They were in a R&B band before they were Seals and Crofts. This was the late 60s. Obviously, there was, like, the baked potato. But did you play live, or did you try to get into the studios at all? Oh, I was kind of at my wit's end, because even though we had been out here for nearly two years as, a, as the band Savage Grace... Uh, I really didn't get to socialize much with or become integrated in uh, the L.A. scene, quote-unquote. So uh, it was like, oh, boy, now what do we do? You know, do we go back to Michigan or do we stay out here? So we, like I said, we made, my wife and I made a decision to stay in California because early on, uh, before even Savage Grace or whatever, I had aspirations of either coming to Los Angeles or New York and getting out of Detroit. But then, then the whole scene changed and uh, the band, the band evolved and uh, that was that. So, uh, but you know, I, I had to find work. So I worked a couple of temp temp jobs and uh, tried to get my footing going. And uh, there was a thing called the musician's referral service at, uh, eventually sprang up around that time, 1971, 72, something like that. And that's, you know, I was just trying to get my name around until I could get some auditions and, and get a club gig going. So I did, and uh, and then I kept doing that for a year and a half or so. What was the club? Oh, there were a number of them. And, you know, I worked with a few different bands, you know, so when one one subsided, something else came up, and um, I started to find that it, you know the uh, the world that seemed so big to me started to get a little smaller. So I started to get a little more comfortable. So I'm curious at that time. You know, uh, obviously Topanga Canyon. You know, years earlier was a haven. Were there still, um, like? Cats that were uh, folk, uh, cats that would come in and sit in with bands. Uh, would you have contact with other 
leaders that already established leaders like you know Jackson Brown, for instance, like would those guys show up and sit in and jam? What was the scene like? Were you just and what kind of music were you playing? Yeah, well, eventually that did happen, and uh, what happened was is there was uh, you know the music environment as far as getting gigs and stuff like that has changed, but. Uh, back then, back in the very early 70s, I'm talking 70, 71, Absolutely. 72. Absolutely. You know, there was this musician's referral ser- service, and then uh, there were uh, rehearsal studios, um, most namely studio instrument rentals, which uh, after my, after Savage Grace uh, broke up, uh, you know, we had like three people that worked for the band outside of managers and you know, our, our roadie crew. Uh, sure. And one of them was my brother-in-law, my wife's brother. He came out with us when the band moved out here. Uh, there were three roadies in the band and two little kids. So uh, the rehearsal thing was uh, something that was like kind of wide open. There were uh, naturally there were rehearsals going on and a number of rooms in the rehearsal studio and people would you know, during breaks or whatever, socialize and um, set up jam sessions or whatever. And that's how I got to know other people. And that's how I I eventually ended up with Jackson Brown. So he was at SIR one day, and is that how you guys met? He was uh, actually, yeah, he was at SIR. My brother-in-law, who was working there, told me about him. And he said, hey, Jackson's looking for a drummer, and... uh, you know, you should go in and, and talk to him or whatever. And so, you know, things like that were happening and for a number of us. And so I did. I, I walked in. I had no idea who Jackson Brown was. He could have been James Brown, as far as I know. And uh, so I, I went in and I said, yeah, you know, I heard that you're looking for a drummer. And he, and he said, well, you know, I'm rehearsing here. And I happen to be rehearsing with somebody else. I don't remember who it was. I was... Uh, at a rehearsal there in, in one of the other rooms. And so then he came over uh, during a break and whatever and listened to me play and then asked me if I'd be willing to come over for an audition on, you know, next day or whatever it was. And that's how that started. What was the, uh, I'm always interested in like how relaxed the audition was, like, and ultimately, like, how quickly. Did you get to road test some of these songs on tour, or how quickly were you in the studio with him? Well, he was uh, still making his second record, uh, the one that uh, has These Days on it, and some other really right. great tunes, Jamaica and what have you. So, uh, he hadn't completed, completed that, and so, uh, you know, we rehearsed. And the, the band was a four-piece band. It was his first band, actually. Uh, and uh, that's what he was putting together because up until that point, it had just been either him alone as solo or him alone with David Lindley. And they would work these different different rooms um, that they could go into, you know, on the road as a duo. And then when he wanted to do something uh, more elaborate, then he had the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Uh, back him up and they would do things together wow so then he decided well i want to have my own band you know uh, so that's 
what happened and uh you got it i mean the guy's looking down i did four cosmic interviews with my dear brother david lindley man that is so beautiful so you and lind tell me a little bit about this you're telling me that he could have been james brown you had no idea uh yeah, I didn't know. And so you never I, i'm not there's no judgment i'm just asking you were steeped in the radio in detroit but you weren't necessarily at, at a in a folk bag he was just beginning to sort of get momentum. He wasn't even a big name, but folk rock, that was not necessarily on your radar. No, it was definitely not yeah. on my radar, especially after, you know, imagine what Savage Grace was like. Right, right. So, I mean, it was it couldn't have been more than 180 degrees from that. But, you know, I studied, uh, I studied the guys that were... Um, <laughs> that were in the studio scene and friends of Jackson that had worked on his record and on Dr. My Eyes and then worked on the second record uh, like uh, Russ Kunkel and uh, uh, Jim Keltner and uh, Jim Gordon. Wow. Uh, these were all the guys that were doing the sessions when I was trying to get established or, you know, just keep working. So, uh, you know, I, I studied how they played and I said, okay, well, this is what, you know, this is my model, and that's how I adapted myself. Wait a minute, dude. Wait, hold on. I just want to give it. You were in studio watching these cats, or just listening to records? No, I would, yeah, I would listen to the records, and I would listen to the approach of the uh, particular drummer, let's say Russ Kunkel. Right. And, uh, you know, I would go to uh, uh, jam sessions or... Uh, rehearsals or little events that these guys might be playing at so I could get an idea of what was going on and uh but Jackson saw obviously something in my playing that he liked and uh, I just adapted quickly which was fortunate for me um what were your th what are your thoughts about Lindley well I love David Lindley I felt a, a, a very rest, rest in peace by the way Pardon me? Rest in peace. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I really miss him, and uh, I've always been very fond of him. Uh, we uh, created a, a really great friendship when we were on the road together. When we first started going out, him and I shared the room together. Wow. And then eventually everybody had their own rooms. But in the beginning, uh, it was uh, me and Lindley and uh, Jackson with Doug Haywood on bass. They would they would share a room, and then as money was was better, then he was able to give everybody their own room. But me and David had a great time together. I, yeah. I learned a lot from him, uh, not only musically but um, uh, socially as totally, dude. Yeah. Um, wait, are you telling me Fritz Richmond was on tour with you guys too? It would. That was the first band, but then he, the band then he played like the jug. Up. Like, was he on tour at all? Because that dude was a badass too. Who's that again? I'm sorry, uh, Fritz Fritz Richmond. I don't know Fritz Richmond. He's on. The, so it's Haywood. It's Doug Haywood. Yeah, Doug Haywood it was uh, uh, Fritz Richmond, David Lindley, Larry Zach. Um, either way, I'm. You know what? The, the this is fascinating. So. Well, Fritz still... Richmond, what did he what did he play? I remember Fritz, but I don't think he was a musician. Well, no, because he didn't. No, he played jug. He played washboard. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the person I'm thinking yeah, of. Exactly. Yes, I remember him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Um, that is one of the baddest bands. And you're telling me this, he did not have... Those studio guys at that time, I've interviewed Russ, uh, Sklar, uh, all those guys, Dergy, all those guys that played on the... They were still, like, trying to establish themselves in the studio scene. I mean, Jim Keltner was just, at that point, beginning to transition into the studios. Um, so you wound up in this very organic... How organic was the recording process? Was it? Was there a lot of overdubbing, or did you guys just all hit at the same time? Uh, no, there wasn't a lot of over. Well, there was overdubbing, dubbing, but essentially we recorded live as a, as a section, uh, bass... Uh, guitar, drums, and piano. So the way that, and it was, like you said, organic, it, it couldn't have been any more organic than it was because wow. what happened was is uh, that didn't happen until after we had we had toured together for a while and Jackson was developing these songs. So uh, when he decided that he was ready, then uh, he said, well, you know, I want to do this record as a band. I'm not going to bring in... Russ Conkle or whoever is going to be this band, this quartet, and then I'm going to augment it. Uh, like I said, what happened was uh, the, the band also evolved. There were some other players that came in over time. Uh, Jay Winding, uh, his father, famous trombone player, Kai Winding. Kai Winding, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Jay was a uh, really great piano player. He came in wow. uh, to do some piano parts on on that uh, Late for the Sky record. Uh, and Jackson wrote the parts, and, he did, and then he had Jay play them and, of course, put in a, a little bit of his own personality into it. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, that's the way it went down. It went down as the homegrown band doing this, not studio musicians, except for uh, the overdubbing. <laughs> brought in friends to do singing some of the guys from the eagles like henley and uh, uh you know some of the ladies uh sang on it i think bonnie might have even had some parts in on there i'm not sure i don't remember well, i didn't i didn't realize this is insane uh terry terry reed sang on it uh don henley D doug dan fogelberg um yep there's uh and it's produced by al schmidt so at that point, I don't believe you were to, like, did you have any gobos between you and Haywood, or were you already in the, in the, uh, in the drum, uh, booth? Uh, what did, what did you mean by gobos? Like, like, in, in the, when you cut the album, were there any go-betweens between you and the rhythm section, or was it everybody hitting at the same time, or were you Yeah, we were hitting at the same time, Linley, Doug. Jackson and myself, or Lindley, Doug, Winding. myself, and Kay Winding. Um, Winding, yeah. I mean, uh, Jay Winding. Um, so, yeah, that was all at the same time. And uh, as far as what went down, most of that, you know, there were, wasn't anything that was taken out and then overdubbed. It, once that solid section went in there, that stayed the way it was. Wow. And then the colorations were added afterwards. Can, how do you? How did you have to use the ride symbol differently from when you were playing at the uh, the Rooster, you know, in Detroit, or even with uh, Savage Grace uh, versus uh, more like, especially in a live folk rock 
setting, how did you use the ride symbol differently in the, in the different contexts? Well, I certainly didn't hit it as hard, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, you know, a different touch um, for all of the drums as far as that goes. But uh, I learned quickly uh, about how I needed to play. Like I said earlier, I used those other drummers as models and and uh, heard how they sounded on record and what their approach was musically. And, uh, you know, until Jackson got comfortable enough with me so I could put more of myself into it. Uh, and he became confident that um, that's right. You know, how, what kind of intensity am I using? So it was uh, uh, that kind of approach for me. And I just responded in uh, uh, the best musical fashion that I could to what the music was dictating. Um. A guy deep in my soul was one of my uh, really honored to have interviewed this guy was Bobby Womack. You played with him too? Oh, I did. Yeah. Can you, I, I mean, I, like that, I, please take us through that whole story. Well, it was uh, very unusual because it happened uh, after Jackson. Uh, we did a tour with Linda Ronset. Yeah. And uh, so at that time, Linda had uh, a great steel pedal steel player sneaky pete yeah sure yeah and uh, from the burrito brothers and you know yeah yeah and uh sneaky and i uh we hit it off together also that's so cool man yeah great guy and uh so he asked me if i would be willing to do the session that bobby womack was doing because bobby womack wanted and i you know asked him about well what's the deal you know and he said well he wants to do something completely different you know, on this record. So um, that's what it was. We went in and uh, uh, it was, it was, it was an unusual, but it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I knew the engineer, Roger Dollarite. And uh, so we recorded over a few days and geez, uh, uh, it was, uh, it was a good experience. I mean, Bobby Womack was very cool. There was no tension in the studio. There was no, uh, uh, kind of uppity up, you know, talking down to anybody was it was he was a good guy and uh, I enjoyed it. So I just want to be clear, uh, Sneaky Pete was on the session too. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah. you guys, you guys were the were there any other rhythm sections or was it just you? It, there was, but I don't remember. Uh, yeah, I really want you to talk. This is an honor. I had no idea. Please tell me about Roger Dollarhide. I've, I've been fascinated with him for a while. Well, I met Roger when uh, I was going back and forth to Studio Instrumentals in Hollywood, uh, which is I, I mentioned earlier. And uh, I had gone in there to record some other stuff uh, with other people. And uh, that's how I met Roger. He was a very cool guy. Uh, he liked me, he liked my wife, we liked him. We went out to lunch together, we spent some time together in and out of the studio, and uh, it turns out that he did this uh, record, as far as I can recall, I'm almost positive that's who was on You're absolutely right, no, totally. Yeah, yeah. This guy, uh, Truman Thomas, was a co-producer, uh, but yeah, it doesn't list, oh, let's see here. Recorded by Ted Myers. Anyway, I, I uh, 
Um, was it just the? You said it was really a lot of fun, but highly unusual, just because it was sort of that like laid back, like things happened on there. It was no real TikTok time. Like it just there was a lot of like sitting around and hanging out. Uh, no, we played a lot in the studio, but it was unusual because uh, just of the nature of where Bobby Womack had been coming from and then bringing somebody like Sneaky in and this whole uh, different kind of approach, different kind of rhythm section feel and so forth. So it was, you know, I thought it was it was unusual, but it was, like I said, it was a lot of fun. I'm trying to think of... Uh, the singer that also worked on the record, uh, famous singer. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get it. No, I mean, this is, let me see. Um, I just wonder, like, uh, what was the, the, guy who, the guy who sang Sonny and then some other hits after that, great hits. He had him come in and do vocals. So I thought that was really cool. How was, um, so what was I wanted to go back to Jackson as well like this idea of you do a tour with Linda Ronstadt and uh, was the money for the gigs did you get paid well for the gigs the only reason I ask is because nowadays my my peers um, really unless you're playing a formula trip every night uh, you know you're not making a lot of money from those the actual gigs themselves and uh and I just wonder, like, what that experience was like, uh, and and how long you stayed on the road for. Well, I was with Jackson for about three years. So, um, what he did was when we were, for one thing, okay, uh, number one, when we are not on the road, in order to retain us, he he paid us while we were at home. Retainer. So the, yeah, there was a retainer. And then when, when we were out playing, of course, I earned more. But to be honest with you, I don't remember how much that was, but it was a comfortable living. Right. And, uh, you know, I was able to take care of the family and all of that. Uh, so we were friends. I mean, we, we were... Uh, Jackson is a very personable guy. Uh, and I've always felt a very close, like I mentioned with David, and there's just something about my relationship with Jackson that I've always uh, cherished uh, as a, a really solid understanding of one another and a friendship that you know sometimes you just can't put words at it. But there's a right. there's a thing, no, I did, there's a thing about yeah, it. Yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. An old yeah. friend that you haven't seen in a long time, and uh, you just reconnect again. Like it was yesterday that you saw one another. Yeah, that's actually that's, every. Every one of my friendships, that's exactly the way it is. But I know exactly how that feels. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful so, spiritual thing. So, that, that, I mean, that... Yeah. So, um, it was just... When you got... were you So, he had you on retainer. Um, and then, did you... I mean, I, like, what were you doing suds and duds commercials? Like, in the mid to late 70s. You know, you're, you're not... Um, like how did like did you were you part of that uh that studio scene uh or did you do other things to augment your living well no i really didn't become part of that the studio scene uh it's too hard to break in for me and 
very well established. Um, honestly, I've never been that great of a businessman. My wife would be, if I had my nipple brains <laughs> and play, and she played drums like me, uh, it would have been a really great formula. But uh, so anyway, uh, after a few years, Jackson, you know, was married and he had his first child, and uh, uh, that was Ethan. And uh, so anyway, he, she wanted to go. Phyllis wanted to go back to Paris. She had, she was an actress, and uh, so he thought for himself he probably could use that kind of sabbatical. And they went back. They, not back, but she was from that area, I guess, and had wanted to go there. So uh, they went to Paris and spent a year there. So while he was gone, he disbanded. You know, that that was it. Hmm. And then, uh, so after a year or so, that uh, that ended. They came back to the United States, and uh, I started getting phone calls. And at the time, um, I think the first phone call I came in, um, I was working with uh, a band called Rare Earth from Detroit. Wow. And uh, do you remember Rare Earth? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not familiar yeah. with the work from... Were you guys in the studio a lot or just doing road gigs? Well, mostly uh, it was all road gigs, uh, but I did go into the studio with them um, at one point to record, and it was with um, Norman Whitfield, the uh, sure. producer from Motown. Wow, what, what, and, what record was that? Uh, I couldn't even tell you. No. <laughs> it was a long time ago. I don't think much happened with it, but... Um, yeah, Frosty had played Frosty. I uh, can't remember Frosty's last name. Are you kidding me, dude? You you knew oh, that Frosty. cat, the Lee Michaels? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. my god, dude, Frosty, man, the 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 legends of lore on that guy are insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was uh, he was a character, and uh, he would do a actually, drum solo though. It was pretty sick, man. Like people, oh, yeah. these with his hands, and and then it would just get. It would just bring everybody up, you know, way up. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really like Frosty, and him and I spent some time together because when oh, that's awesome. Rare Earth was, was bringing me in to play with them, uh, Frosty had decided to leave, and he had been with them for about a year. And uh, I, I they, what they did is they brought me out with Frosty two drum sets so that I could get a feel for what was going on, and we played the concerts together. Uh, yeah, that's that, one of the best stories I've heard this year, by by, by far. <laughs> that is freaking yeah, so awesome. I had a chance dude. to see Frosty in, in his prime, I think, but he played great drum solos, and yeah, that's where I learned to play with my hands also. Uh, but what, what was a trip about him is he wore pajamas to play in, right? okay? And he wore uh, sandals on his feet, like regular flip-flops. Oh. And uh, that just worked great for him. That was perfect for him, and uh, you know, because things were getting pretty hot, and he was a little over, uh, a little overweight, maybe, or just a, kind of a big guy, and uh, so he had his. He, I mean, I'm curious. How did he uh, teach you to play with your hands on the drum kit? Well, I just saw how he did it, and I said, "That's a great idea," you know. I so I started to incorporate that. Uh, and I saw how he did it, so you don't... Well, no, explain it. how... I'm, I'm curious about this. Like, there's a certain... It's a touch? Well, yeah, you can yeah. you can play with your 
your palms facing down towards the drums, but you have to be careful how you hit the rim. You know, you have to hit the rim and the drum head at the same time, but if you're playing with your palms down, you better be doing something pretty light. Uh, but to get any kind of volume, you turn your palms towards the sky and you play backhanded like that. So your fingertips are hitting the drum head and there's a lot more articulation and there's a lot more volume and you can go around the drums like that. Pretty wow. cool. That is, so you got the, so you went on the road with Rare Earth and then, um, and that yeah, was. Yeah, and that's when Jackson came back and uh, oh. he said uh, that, well, somebody called me from his office. It wasn't him directly, it was his manager. And, you know, it's not the greatest time for me to remember in my that's musical fine. Yeah, uh, history because I made some decisions which, uh, honestly, I regret, but. I was I went back to school and I was studying uh, I was studying some jazz stuff on piano and I was playing in the big band at uh, LA City College and uh, you know trying to get more involved in the, the jazz idiom that I aspired to but uh, you know 2020 hindsight you make mistakes and I should have taken the gigs that I was offered but I didn't so that's kind of where that whole thing ended. So what happened was is when uh, when I was still with Jackson, Rare Earth called me up, and this is when they had uh, a, a lawsuit going on. They had a falling out. So two of the guys, main singer, Pete, and the bass player, they fought against the three other guys in the band. Wow. And in New York, it went to court, and they lost. So the three guys retained the name of the band, and that's how they continued on with their career for a number of years. So the first year that that happened, they called me, and I said, I can't do it uh, for two reasons. First of all, I'm playing with Jackson. Second of all, uh, I don't feel right about it because I knew these guys when they were a bar band back in Detroit, and they went by <laughs> the, the name of the Sunliners. Right. So, uh, right. you know, they would come to a hear us play we would go hear them play i would sit in with the band with ron Koss. we would go do things with them uh but then a year later things changed so Kossi had done that whole year and then i came in and then uh goes on from there well no i mean uh so that you're telling me that you were you were they were checking you out back when you guys were playing clubs you and yeah. Ron in Detroit. Right. Wow. Wow. I mean, do you feel like you... Hindsight's twenty twenty, but um, I do feel like you found your footing... I mean, are you at peace musically, or do you... Why, why is it a regret? Well, because, uh, you know, I don't know where my brain was at the time, but I... I put it on this goal I had, right. which was, uh, it was naive of me because I got calls from Jackson. I got calls from Linda Ronstadt, uh, and they asked me to go on tour, and I turned it down. Oh, Warren Zevon called. So those three people who I had associations with, I had turned them all down, and my wife said, you shouldn't do that. And I did it. 
And I regret it because, you know, I look back at that music and I love that music. But I had this thing in my head, I want to play jazz and blah, blah, blah. You know, so I did my share of doing stuff like that. But to make a living and to keep learning as a musician, you know, I had I had the knack for playing um, that kind of music. I mean, Jackson's kind of music and Linda's and so forth. So I would have really enjoyed having the time that I could have had with those people again, but... No, but I, I mean, mean, like, um, at that time, thinking back, were like, you were sort of, like, looking to expand your musical horizons. You were a little bit bored of the whole thing. That's why you were moving on. Otherwise, you would have been crazy to turn that stuff down. Yeah, I know there was an opportunity to play with uh, Rick Nelson, and I turned that down. And you know, I look back at that, and I said, well, "I could have done that." You know, he was a great guy. I could have done that kind of music. There was a chance to audition for Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, and you know, people like that. And I turned it down. I even turned down playing with Chuck Berry at one time. Uh, you know, because he would go around, and he would pick up bands everywhere he goes. So and I regret turning those things down. And I did I turn them down? <laughs> uh, well, there's Larry in his tangled mind. <laughs> well, I'm just fascinated. Like, what would have been a gig you would have said yes to? What, what's that again? What would have been a gig that you would have said yes to? You're saying no to all this stuff. What would have been a gig that would you you would have said yes to? Well, probably. Uh, something that was more challenging I thought because sometimes the simpler that the music is the more challenging it is you know but I still had those aspirations that I was able to pursue when I was with Savage Grace mm -hmm. I mean I was all over the place you know and I look back at it and I say geez that's a little bit like garage drumming but when I talk to my other guys in, in the band like John Seymour he says, no, it wasn't. He said it was perfect for what we were doing. You know, so we are critics mostly of ourselves than anybody else's. But, you know, I was looking for that kind of expression. But yet, I express myself uh, in music that's um, seemingly simpler. It's how you do it. It's the taste that you approach the music. What is your conviction to doing that to complement that songwriter you know jackson at one time called me he said uh he said you're a song drummer mm -hmm. you know so i thought that was a great compliment yeah. i no one ever said that to me yeah before. you know so i would associate that with somebody like ringo Starr. you know you play to the song you play to the music like ringo he said i i never put his drums on my own that's the kind of drummer he was he just played to whatever the Beatles needed. You know, he was the perfect guy for that band. And he was very, very musical. So you can't deny that uh, musicality of that nature uh, surpasses everything in every genre. You know, I see guys that have much less uh, chops or uh, much less... Um, musical vocabulary but they can apply themselves in such a way that you say man that is and sometimes it just takes years to learn that kind of maturity of the way that you perceive something 
So I think that that's what was missing when I made those decisions. I didn't have that kind of perception. It took me a long time to arrive at that kind of maturity. So that's I what happened. I did. Yeah. Um, but you still found a way to get in to, like, uh, so were you going to, uh, what was it, Carmel? No, not Carmelo's, Dante's. Or Dino's? Like, were you going to sit in and play jazz when you sort of... Well, I, yeah, I couldn't sit in there, but I, I, would, I went to those clubs. Yeah, I went to Dante's, and uh, there was... Who were you checking out there, like Claire Fisher or Alan Broadbent? I mean, those, there was some... Yeah, they got all those kind of people. They got all those kind of people. And then, and then the other one in, uh, in Hollywood. Uh, the Manhole. Well, the Manhole turned into uh, another club that's been doing very well for years and actually had the opportunity to play there but uh, I just can't think of the name of the, the Roxy right the Roxy no the Roxy I played at the Roxy but that was years ago Roxy was not a jazz place no but play. I mean that you know the, the, they, the uh, have, yeah no the Crusaders play played a, there, the man. Crusaders played a six show at the Roxy um, yeah. so you know but uh, who did you play at the Roxy with uh, with Jackson and uh, I played there uh, as a percussionist with uh, Phoebe Snow. Damn. And that's it as far as I remember. Yeah. So um, yeah, not- th- th- so, so, tell me a little bit about, like, so you wouldn't sit in, but were you playing, Did you were you able to get on the bandstand and at least play some of, the, get some of that jazz and more sophisticated music? Well, yeah, I, I had the opportunity to do that. Uh, you know, I, I became friends with some people when I was uh, studying this stuff at uh, at the L.A. City College. And uh, then people were putting bands together, and I would have an opportunity to play in those bands. And we get these little gigs around uh, venues in town, coffee houses and so forth. And, uh, you know, some little festivals and what have you. But it wasn't on any... Uh, Big scale. No, my, but I mean, was that was it? It doesn't even matter. I mean, clearly you were in pursuit of of, mu- of the music. So I mean, was it was was it satisfying, regardless of whether it? Was... It was because what ha- what started to happen um, uh, was uh, you know the jazz fusion thing. Right. So a lot of drummers uh, found their voice in, in that kind of music also because it gave them an opportunity to be more expressive. Uh, and not have this huge leap from, uh, let's say, playing in a rock band or an R&B band or a blues band or what have you, or completely, you know, a bebop um, kind of environment. Right. So, and, and who would establish that? And I know that Tony Williams did it before Miles did uh, with his band. Uh, and there was that whole thing with Bitches Brew, which totally blew my mind and unfortunately I had not heard about Tony's band um, uh, yeah no Lifetime what's that again Lifetime yeah, yeah. Lifetime yeah Bert, Larry Young so, and John McLaughlin yeah yeah so you know so I wasn't exposed I didn't know about Tony and what he was doing with that uh, with that band, which I would have latched on to right away, but I did hear about Bitches Brew one time. One of my visit, <laughs> visits back to Detroit, we were hanging out with musicians, and uh, 
this uh, guy, guitar player, whatever, he said, I got to put this on for you guys. And uh, what it was was Bitches Brew. And I said, this is ridiculous. Man. This is exactly what I, what I need to hear. This is how I want to play. This is what I want to do. I can, you know, I can definitely connect with this. So, wow. see, there's always this kind of uh, element. But anyway... Yeah, great drummers on that record. Billy Cobham, uh, Jack DeJanette, Lenny White. You know. Yeah, well, there's a great story. There's a great. There's a great story about uh, uh, Lenny White couldn't get this simple drum beat, and and Don Elias, another great drummer, percussionist, sat down. Yeah. And uh, he uh, he worked it out, and Lenny was young at that time, and he was really disappointed, and he was sort of you know. Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. So, so Lenny couldn't get, couldn't, couldn't get it, and he uh, Miles went up to him and said, "You ain't getting the chicken," and he replaced him with Don Elias. And so Lenny's sitting there dejected, and Miles comes up to him. He, he said, "What's wrong, man?" He's like, "Man, I, I feel like I blew it up there." He's like, "He's like, don't worry, man. Come back tomorrow. You, you did great." So he played Shaker A on that, but Billy Cobb played drums. Uh, Mitch, I think was that Mitch Mitchell was on there. Harvey Brooks was on there. It was really. Check DJ Spiraling into, you know, because I mean, Rick Murata was talking about seeing Jack DeJanet with an upright bass player or electric bass player. He was live in the Village Gate in New York, so the live experience yeah. must have been pretty cosmic as well. Um, did, I heard Jack DeJanet with his band at the East Town Ballroom, um, and we were visiting back in Detroit. And uh, Sharon and I, my wife and I, we went to the East Town Ballroom. And this is before, this is after the whole era with Savage Grace and, sure. and all the Detroit bands and, and all that stuff. Um, and they put the seats back in to the theater and were holding these kind of like jazz concerts. And uh, I went there to see Jack DeJanette. That was really great. But. Anyway, I don't want to babble on about that. No, no, no. I mean, that's wait. So you're talking like his late later seventies bands. Uh, this would probably have been, um, you know, like the early to mid seventies. I think. Yeah, that's so, yeah. dude. Those were I can't believe you were seeing that stuff live. You yeah it was. How did you um? Were you going to the Whiskey a Go Go to see the Doors? How did you meet Robbie Krieger? Uh, I met Robbie Krieger through one of the uh, jazz fusion bands I was in, the, a band a friend of mine, uh, Billy Wolf, had put together. That was the band that did some concerts, and uh, we were together for a few years and uh, did some recordings together. Uh, so uh, Robbie Krieger and, and Billy Wolf were friends in high school, and they both auditioned for The Doors. <laughs> oh my Robbie god <laughs> <laughs> they remained friends for a long time and then uh, Robbie uh, knew that I had played with some people of notoriety in, in LA and and uh, he, he then saw that I was playing with ja uh, with uh, Billy Wolf so he asked me to come in and do a recording with him so I did that and uh but and I also recorded at his new studio that he has in uh, uh, Burbank, beautiful studio, and he basically built it to uh, rehearse his own band. But 
I went in there to do a record with the last thing I did with Billy Wolf and uh, uh, he had the Yellow Jackets play on the record the whole Yellow Jackets band yeah um, but there were a couple of uh, tunes that he wanted me to play on so I went in they had already recorded it but I went in and I put uh, a drum part on the record on two tunes and I played with the bass player from the Yellow Jackets I always forget his name yeah forget no actually names. it's funny uh, I'm sorry I, it's, I, I can see him but I can't yeah. uh, say his name yeah so when did when I mean, did you he, yeah guys are incredible yeah no they're great uh what what was the uh what this jazz fusion band with Billy Wolf what, what, when was that that was uh like uh 76 77 do you have tapes of that stuff Pardon me. Do you have Do you have recordings of that band? Uh, yes, I do. I would yeah, I would somewhere. love to hear some of this stuff because, like, you must have been doing, like, uh, I mean, that was the pinnacle of Weather Report, Return to Forever, and My Vishnu Orchestra. Well, it wasn't on that level. Of course uh, not, know. but I'm saying, yeah. what were you, what, was it more rock? Like, where were you? Were you trying to go for that, or were you playing original tunes? It was all original pieces that uh, Billy Wolf wrote, and uh, some of them really good. And he he grabbed from the bebop era. He grabbed from R and B. He grabbed from his blues background, and uh, you know he he was he's a very talented guy that uh, just couldn't you know get a hold on it because that's a very difficult area to make a living on or to keep it going or keep it employable uh, so you know things happen in life and like that but, absolutely uh, no absolutely who was it was it a quintet or like who, who was in the band yeah I think it was a quintet uh, there was uh, it was saxophone piano bass drums guitar and uh, Lewis Taylor was a saxophone player. He played with Ray Charles. Is his band and for quite a long time. Uh, Rich, uh, I can't think of Rich's last name right now, but he, you know, these guys played with a lot of different people, but they were very well, uh, very well steeped in. Uh, yeah, they had a deep bag of, of two. Now, you know, bandstand yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Tom Fowler on bass is... Oh, dude I, dude, I interviewed Tommy, dude. You do? I know. I interviewed Tommy, man. He, I, I, that dude was playing with John Hicks in San Francisco, man, way back. Yeah. Oh, I my mean, God, dude. This is the sickest really band. And uh, we got along just fine. That was a long time ago, though. And, uh, you know, so there were a few different musicians that... Uh, that uh, Billy used in his bands, so that's what was happening then. And once, uh, once I got off the road with Rare Earth, then uh, you know, I I really uh, I stopped playing with them because I just couldn't deal with it. Because what what the deal was with Rare Earth? Every week, this was the schedule: Thursday through Sunday, fly home on Monday. Thursday through Sunday, fly home on Monday. And that's the the schedule they had. They were able to book four dates, you know, to play at, at least three for sure. And that's the way that it ran every week, almost every week. 
And uh, hold on, and you I would go. It. You would go to like Chicago, Seattle, Oklahoma. Like it would just. Yeah. yeah, they had a lot of great. They were still getting a lot of great gigs. Uh, I mean, we worked with the Isley Brothers, Parliament, Funkadelic. We did a lot of those kind of R and B shows. Oh, so, uh, average white band. Uh, you know, it goes on and on because that's what was going on at that time. And so Rare Earth had a good enough name that, you know, oh, I remember uh, Kiss opened for us. Absolutely. This is when they first came out, you know, and, uh, and look what happened to those guys. But uh, it was fun playing with Rare Earth. Plus, I got to play with Reggie McBride on bass. Uh. And, uh I love Reggie. Dude, and, that dude's the best, man. Oh, man. I'm telling you. He is the best. I eventually Reggie and I worked together again. Uh, I had him come in and play with a club band I was in called Hotness and Fingertips, <laughs> and uh, that happened like around '78. And uh, I stayed. In, uh, that was a good way for me to stay in town. And uh, I played four nights a week with them, and we we just did a concert, two concerts together about three weeks ago. So we've been able to get together every now and then for a little reunion. And I've known these guys for 45 years or more. A completely different band, 180 degrees, 80 degrees from anything else I ever did. So, uh, anyway. No, no, I mean, I'm just absolutely floored. I mean, it's a phenomenal. So you were really kind of just, where was the club? I guess you were able to cultivate a living playing live music. Pretty much, yeah. And uh, we moved in Santa Monica, and uh, the band had been there for two years before. Our, they didn't even have a drummer. And then I got a call from the harmonica player, Chris Smith, at the time, and he uh, said, would you like to come and check the band out? He knew about me and called me, and I said, sure. So and I went down, and I figured, well, now let me try this out for a month or so, see how I like it. And I ended up staying for like six years. But... Uh, during that time, I was able to uh, go out of town and do a few gigs with, uh, you know, people that were on tour. Uh, uh, I played with Roger Miller. Uh, I was in his band. No way. Are you kidding with, me? Uh, uh, Jennifer Warnes. Yeah. And, uh, wow. and uh, Carol Bayer Sager, a lyricist from New York. She wrote. Uh, lyrics to all kinds of songs with uh, Burt Bacharach and uh, hmm. uh, Marvin Hamlish. Sure. When, yeah, when I was on the road with her, Marvin Hamlish, they were boyfriend and girlfriend for a while. And uh, that was pretty interesting. So I was able to, to leave the club for a couple of weeks. I'd have somebody come in and sit in for me. Um, most notably, uh, Tony Bronigal, who's a uh, fine drummer here in Los Angeles. A dear, fr a dear, dear friend of mine, yeah. He's yeah. A, yeah, no, I've, I've been to his house. Uh, didn't, we didn't, we have, we have good hangs. That He's a fantastic person and a great drummer. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, the Los Angeles was no longer, you know, uh, no man's land for me. I had been able to make friends and somebody said, eventually, he said, you'll find out, you know, that uh, uh, one person that you know knows this other person and before you know it you'll start putting these these pieces of the puzzle together and 
your world won't seem so scattered. And then that's what happened. It took a long time to find somebody who was uh, actual native of California because I kept running into these other things. But what are the other, you know, I can go on, but I don't know how much time. No, go ahead, man. I can go on for a little while. Yeah, longer. please, no, please, I'd love to hear it. So uh, after, while I was still working at this club in Santa Monica, uh, Dallas Hodge and Catfish Hodge's older brother uh, moved to California. Right. And so Dallas had beat Catfish out here and actually lived up in Santa Cruz for a while, but came down to uh, this area, Southern California, and then his brother moved out here, uh, Catfish, and uh, we... They put, we put a band together, and I, I had them come and sit in. The club was called Old Mahoney's. And, uh, yeah, Old Mahoney's was a, Mahoney, Old Mahoney was a, a boxer, an Irish boxer. And so it was named after him. But So they came down, we sat in, they sat in, and then the next thing we knew, we had a band. And the owner said, you know, I'd like to have you guys come in and play here. So uh, we started sharing the stage with Hot Lips and Fingertips. We played two days a week. And um, uh, the Hodge was, we played the other two days. And I think what happened was Hot Lips and Fingertips was just getting burnt out and playing that club for so many years. So uh, uh, it was okay. It was kind of a, a relief to most of the guys, I think. And eventually, then, the Hodge brothers were playing there four nights a week. Um, but uh, the Hodge brothers was a great band. It had Catfish in it, Dallas in it. Uh, we had um, uh, David Woodford, phenomenal uh, saxophone player yeah. from Los Angeles. David played with everybody and played on a bunch of hit records. Uh, he did a t <laughs> TV show called, uh, what was it, uh, some kind of talent show. I were you were, were 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 the were the Hodge brothers inspired to write original tunes at that time, or were you guys playing like what, what kind of songbook were you playing? Yeah, there was uh, original tunes in the band brought in by everybody. Uh, oh, Skip Van Winkle was in the band. Oh my God, thank you. Dude. I just interviewed Matt Teagarden, David Teagarden's son. Oh, yeah. So T, you know Teagarden and Van Winkle. Did you know those cats? Yeah, yeah I. Remember them, of course. I remember Dave Teagarden from back in Michigan, and then um, I just interviewed under, his son. You know, he's such a beautiful drummer himself. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, and yeah. I saw David when we had a memorial for Skip out here when he passed. Right. Away. Yeah. So Dave, uh, David was there, and uh, that's a burning, burning band. Yeah, I mean that is a burning band. So. Uh, yeah, so it was Dallas Catfish, uh, David Woodford, and uh, Marty Greb. Marty Greb played with all kinds of Oh, my God, the Buckinghams, dude. Come on, bro. I've interviewed Marty, <laughs> rest in peace. i got to send you all these interviews, man. <laughs> yeah. So that band did very well also until it didn't. And, um, you know, so when that band stopped playing, uh, it we finished up the last year at O'Mahony's with uh, Hot Lips and Fingertips and uh, the Hodge Brothers, and then he closed the joint down eventually. They 
sold it, and they uh, made a lot of money. Mm. He made a lot of money on the bands I played with there because they built up the crowd, and we were not really, <laughs> what's news about this, reciprocated for, you know, bringing in the people that we did bring in there. But uh, right. anyway, everybody's got their, uh, you know, violins to play and their handkerchief to blow their nose in. But um, so once that, that went away, um, I started going back to school again, and I was thinking about getting my bachelor's degree, so I, I went back to the community college, and I got the AA degree, but I never got the bachelor's degree because I got a call from uh, from uh, Catfish uh, and Paul Barrera. Well, Paul Barrera used to come in and sit in with the Hodge brothers a lot. We had a lot of people. Well, now I know why. Now, I, now you just answered... Because Dallas is trying to figure it out. Now you just said it. Paul Barrera is the reason, this whole nexus right here. That's awesome. Go ahead. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, while we were at O'Mahoney's playing with the Hodge brothers, mostly, but Hot Lips had also a lot of people come in and sit in. Uh, but, uh, you know, Paul would come in and sit in almost every week. Uh, Richie came in and Richie Hayward came in. No, Hayward would come in. You'd let him, would he play, would he play on a tune or two? Oh, absolutely. Oh, my God. This is the great. This is it, this? man. This is it. Mitch Mitchell came in there. Holy Jesus. Played drums. Because you played. I got it. Larry, I got to tell you. What? <laughs> you, you caught the last golden era of live music, playing original music. You really. You, that, that, that was still. The late 70s and early 80s was still yeah. magic, magical opportunities to make a living and play the music you loved. It really was. It really was. And then, you know, I got to tell you this, Tony Williams came in and sat in. I'm not surprised by that. He was a man of the people, dude. That must have been... Tell me about that experience. You look over and he's like... It was just so unusual. Uh, wow. What happened was is that uh, Skip... Uh, Skip... Uh, knew Don Livingston, and Don Livingston um, lived very near um, where my wife grew up in St. Clair Shores, just a couple of blocks over her and her brother, Dave Livingston. But Don Livingston was working for uh, a record company up in the Bay Area, and she was like a, a person to show people around. She brought Tony to the gig. And uh, and I guess she contact she knew how to contact Skip, so he told her he said, "Well, I'm I'm playing here. Bring him down. I think he'd enjoy hearing the band." So he came down. Oh my uh, God! It's like because he was up in there. Pacifica. He was living up in Pacifica. Yeah, I think he. And he was uh, he was actually tu tuning pianos and shit. Go ahead. Yeah. So anyway, we played a set, and I didn't know he was in there, and. I, I walked down on, uh, you know, walking through the club, and this guy passed me, and I look at him, and I say, I know who that is, <laughs> and uh, Skip came by, and I said, that's not Tony Williams, is it? <laughs> he said, yeah, that's Tony. <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. I said, what is he doing here? Blah, 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 blah. So Tony was sitting up at the bar with uh, Don Livingston, and I, I walked over and I sat down and I, I shook his hand and introduced myself. And, uh, you know, we had a little conversation. And I said, if you feel comfortable and you 
feel like maybe you'd like to sit in, I, I would love to have you do that. Oh. And of course, this band, as I described to you, was uh, was no, you know, he couldn't ignore the fact that there was something happening up there. So, uh, <laughs> dude, there was a lot guy, going on up there, dude. Yeah, I'll sit in. So he came up there and he sat in a couple of tunes, and I sat down right in front of him, just about. And um, there were a whole lot of people in there that it was like a Thursday night. What a magical, magical a, story. Yeah, it was just really fantastic that I had that opportunity. And then uh, we were working at a different club, same band, not, not long after that, but Cornell Dupree was playing with us at the time. No yeah. way, dude. Yeah. No, yeah, we and, Barrere and, and Cornell Dupree. So we, he was actually yeah. in the band? Well, uh, keep in mind with the Hodge brothers, this was, uh, Paul was just sitting in every now right. and then. So it was Dallas playing lead guitar, and then Cornell started coming in and playing with us almost every time we played. And, uh, you know, he would sit on the stool and he would smoke his pipe. And oh uh, my God. he invited uh, so Steve Gadd to come down. Steve Gadd was in town at the NAMM show. So Steve Gadd came down with his wife and a baby that was less than a year old. <laughs> that, I mean, and, he, uh, that, did he sit in? Oh, absolutely. I said, Steve, would you like to sit in? And he said, sure. You know? So he said, so you, I mean, dude, Larry Zach, man, uh, <clears throat> these cats are coming to see, unbelievable, man. Do you, are you, uh, oh my God, uh, maybe, uh, you know, we, we should probably pick this conversation up. I, I gotta, I gotta go, I gotta jam right now, but I, it was just yeah. such, it was such a ball to hang, man. Well, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to share uh, this with you because I don't really have the opportunity. No one's that inquisitive about what my history is with these people, but I just feel very grateful that I was able to experience them being in my life and having these wonderful drummers and other musicians coming through, uh, like you said, and then it goes on from there, but... I'm I'm glad that I could be here and have this conversation with you. Yeah, bro. You. Yeah, we'll be in touch, Larry. All right. Much love to you, man. Much love to you as well, Jake. Thank you. I'll, all right. Be cool. Bye. Bye.